and we are recording Dr. Kevin Barrett on Tuesday, November 22nd, 2022, the, what is it, the 60, 59th anniversary of JFK's assassination. I just realized that. I should have, I just, I just had on Charlie Duke who walked on the moon. I didn't tie that in because JFK did give the Rice University speech or a speak speech about walking on the moon. I completely missed opportunity. I bumbled that. I fumbled it. No, all right. Well, Dr. Bear, please introduce yourself, my man. All right. Yeah. Well, hey, it's good to be with you, Tommy. And I'm, uh, I'm a defrocked academic, as it were. Uh, I spent my life in the humanities because I found it more interesting than the hard sciences. Well, by uh, tests, by test scores, you should say I was really good at math, and not so great, you know, not at the very top, at least in in uh, verbal stuff. But uh, I, what I like is the opposite of what I was naturally good at. So I got into humanities. I ended up with uh, three uh, advanced degrees in different languages and literatures. And in uh, early, what was it, uh, 2004, I was teaching at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and finishing up a PhD. And I happened to hear that David Ray Griffin who was a very notable scholar that I had cited in my ongoing dissertation, was uh, about to come out with a book arguing that 9-11 was a false flag, that the Pentagon had been hit by something other than hijacked jetliners, and that the World Trade Center had been blown up with explosives. And all of that struck me as pretty unusual. I mean, I already kind of suspected there was something fishy about 9-11. I didn't think we'd ever know what it was. Sure. But those out outrageous kinds of statements from Griffin got me interested. So I checked it out. I did some research and I was floored. I couldn't believe how obvious it was. And I couldn't believe that they'd gotten away with it for a day, much less three years. And I was outraged. And I had to say, stop and think about whether I wanted to spend my life uh, keeping my mouth shut about that. And I quickly decided I didn't. So I started doing teach-ins and publishing and things like that about that issue, along with finishing up my dissertation. Uh, and let's, let's see, I finished the dissertation, I think at the beginning of 2005, finished my PhD and stayed at the university teaching as an adjunct professor. And in, by 2006, the 9-11 Truth Movement was really rolling. And somehow I got nominated as the negative example to be set to terrify the other professors in case they ever think of talking about the things that you're talking about. So uh, I was dragged on to Hannity and, uh, and later Bill O'Reilly talking about those issues. And uh, I think the purpose, again, was to beat me up in the mainstream media to scare other professors away. But it, it sort of worked, sort of didn't, but it, it basically did make me unemployable in mainstream American uh, academia. So at that point, I had a choice of do I want to go back and teach somewhere else in the world or do I want to keep fighting this thing? So I kept fighting. And so since then, I've been an independent uh, publisher and journalist and broadcaster and so on and a general troublemaker. And I've, I've been waging what I call a truth jihad, which is it's so much easier to talk if you just tell the truth the way you see it rather than stopping to worry about how people are going to see what you're saying. So I've been doing that and talking about looking into as many of the most controversial issues that have some kind of interesting substance to them that I can find. And uh, as a result, um, <laughs> I'm, uh, I've been attacked by the ADL about a dozen times and uh, have had all kinds of issues with all kinds of people. 
who cares who attacks you? It's <clears throat> it's all good publicity, I guess, in a sense. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, you know, I'm kind of I'm kind of angry because last summer I interviewed Dr. McCullough and Dr. Malone, and then I interviewed them both again in September of last year, October, November, December, and then they both went on Joe Rogan. They became his first and second most downloaded episodes of all time. And he got attacked by the White House and the mainstream media. I never got attacked. Oh, I just man. got I just That's got quiet, I just got quietly banned from YouTube. Never oh, got attacked. I could have used that still could use that publicity. I would love to have been attacked. I would have loved to have been slandered and called a misinformation Nazi. That would have helped my podcast grow so much. But they didn't give it to me. They gave it to the guy that already had it all. And I think he said he added 2 million subscribers after all the, I'm like, I'm trying to break 13,000, but you know, woe is me. My, yeah. 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 It's they, they finally figured out that attacking me wasn't helping them. You know, first there was one wave in 2006 and then they gave up on that. And then there was another wave in the mid like 2015, 2016 ish period after I published some books. Uh, and in, in both cases, it didn't hurt at all. I mean, I, the more they attack you, the better, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And there's um, I've never understood the the hatred or the guttural rejection or the desire to use it as an insult when talking about conspiracy theories. It's that that is conspiracy theories are a derogatory term for critical thinking and thesis formulation. When you, I did. I co-authored uh, aquatic toxicology research in college, not because I gave a shit, but because it helped me get into medical school. But I had to do it. It looked good on the resume. Whatever. I was putting pipettes of salt in beakers with fit. Whatever. It doesn't matter. I was hungover. I was 20 years old. I was an idiot frat boy. Whatever. It looked good on the resume. But even then, it was... I remember that that was striking because it wasn't like biology or chemistry where if you didn't know the answer, you go to the back of the book. And then if you still didn't get it, you go in and the professor would walk you through it. Where there was an answer... And you kind of had to figure it out. And then if you couldn't, they could ultimately give you the keys to the kingdom and, and show you what it is. Research was interesting because when I would go to my professor, who was the smartest woman I had ever met, and she would say, well, we don't know. That's what we're trying to figure out. And I was like, oh, this is this is cool. And, you know, like, like a kid, it's like, oh, this is a video game on hard. I was like, oh, this is, there is no cheat sheet. We don't know. There is no index at the back of the book. We're trying to find out. I think the, re the research was called the effects of salinity on nickel toxicity to the two urohaline fish species, Cryptolebius marmoratus and fungulus heteroclitus. We'd basically, we'd put fish in different, different variations of salt water and we'd poison them with nickel. It was kind of, kind of, we, it was just genocidal. And then we try to figure out what was the leak and whatever. It's not, it's truly not interesting, but we had all these different hypotheses. No one called us conspiracy theorists. We were like, maybe it's the magnesium. And then after a year, we were like, it's not the magnesium. The magnesium is actually helping. And then it's, well, maybe it's the, the the sodium. The sodium and the bicarbonate is. And eventually you have all these wildly different ideas and not just like a multiple choice answer. It's this, 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 or this. It was either magnesium is binding to the nickel or sodium bicarbonate is doing something to the capillaries in the gill or all these wildly different answers that in hindsight, after several years, when we figured out whatever the ligand model was, we went, oh, there's the answer. If you looked back at our our early theses, they were so wildly incorrect. So what? just insanely incorrect. But we didn't know. We we're trying to figure it out. 
and then we moved forward. The second you apply it, that logic to not just events, but critical events that change the world and often result in the massive transfer of wealth and shifting of geopolitical power, you're a bad guy. It's when General Lemnitzer of the Joint Chiefs of Staff puts forward Operation Northwoods to attack U.S. Uh, uh, Army bases and bomb schools in Miami and blow up a jetliner so that we can invade Cuba. And it gets all the way up to JFK. And then he says, no, we just go, ah, there's the Cold War. <laughs> and then when there's a when there's a when there's that uh, project for a new American century paper in 2000 that says absent a new Pearl Harbor or a cataclysmic event in Manhattan, America won't be able to reestablish its dominance throughout the world. And then 9-11 happens. Now, I'm not saying that is what happened. I don't know. I've. You know, I've I've interviewed several times a firefighter who lost a lot of friends on 9-11 who personally responded to Ground Zero, and he's still going through PTSD. I don't, maybe it's my own hubris, I don't, I don't view it as disrespectful to him. I don't view it at all. I'm just, at the very least, trying to examine things. JFK, the, the, the 9-11, but COVID, censorship. The USS Maine, the type, whatever you want to look at. Now, are they all? Maybe they're not. I'm glad to hear that you remember the Maine. Yeah, we got to remember the Maine. Never forget. Never forget the Maine. And uh, right, 1898. But even when guys like uh, General Smedley Butler, uh, the most decorated Marine of all time, who finally wrote in his little pamphlet, Wars a Racket, in 1933, I used to suspect I was a strong arm for business interests. Now I'm certain. When Dwight Eisenhower, five-star general and supreme or allied commander of the or supreme commander of the allied forces becomes president, sets up the the continuity of government system, and two days before he leaves goes, by the way, there's this beast of a machine lurking in the shadows. Watch out for it. Peace. And then two years later, JFK gets popped. When they say it, it takes a little. Yeah. It gives you pause. If Tom Brady looks at an up-and-coming guy and says, that guy's going to be the new best quarterback, it holds a little more weight. So that's kind of my stump speech for why I do and will always love conspiracies. And, um, yeah, if there is motive, if there's money to be made in a shifting of the geopolitical chessboard, why wouldn't you look at it? And of course, you know, it's a problem. There, there's a, an even bigger problem once you look into some of these things and you see that there is a prima facie case uh, against this or that official story and a very strong one in many cases. And then you see the way that's treated in the mainstream. <laughs> and, you know, you know, they're dishonest, you know, they're lying, you know, you know, they're just propagandists, because if they weren't, they would be at least acknowledging the validity of some of these critiques and some of these other hypotheses. And maybe they would, you know, they would bring people on who would try to uh, debunk them, but they would deal honestly with them. 
And obviously they don't. You know, anybody who's actually spent any time investigating any of these kinds of issues that I deal with on my show, JFK, 9-11, and uh, even, you know, some of the more esoteric ones like the existence of psi uh, or, uh, you know, alleged existence of free energy or UFOs, you know, these kinds of extreme ones. Um, but certainly all the, all the political ones, right? There's, you know, Zionist power and, and all these, hot, you know, third rail issues. If you just take a few moments to look into those, you'll pretty quickly figure out that there are very real debates going on sure. and that, you know, often the taboo side is probably right, or at least has a better prima facie case than the establishment side. And I found that over and over and over and over again. And at the very least, that proves that the mainstream is totally dishonest and acting just as a single voice propaganda machine. It's if something cannot withstand brutal examination and discourse i think was it charlie brown that said if something can be destroyed by the truth it deserves to be destroyed by the truth i don't know if that was charlie brown i, I don't think been. charlie brown was that profound i mean it may, might maybe, it, and i might peppermint it, patty I it might have been hitler i have no idea i don't want to like misquotes but somebody's like tommy that's a hitler no, don't misquote charlie brown I mean, yeah. charlie might sue you you know yeah i that's true yeah. i mean yeah these I, days I remember Alex while. Jones got sued out of existence. It yeah, looks like so. I mean, two, maybe Charlie two, Brown will come forward and try and get us two point six so. trillion. I think Alex Jones got sued for. But even now, if I'm directly, I can get where I got to meet Alex Jones last New Year's Eve. It was a very cool experience, and I, I thought he was a nice guy. And I'd love. I think he's the most entertaining human alive. I don't know the full story of like him and I don't want to go down this rabbit hole. I don't I can't speak on it because I don't know the full story of him covering Sandy Hook. I know the allegations are that he was sending people to people's houses. Other people say he wasn't. I don't know. And again, I, I don't I kind of don't want to get pigeonholed in that. But let's just use it theoretically. Let's say he did have people going to people's houses and harassing them. Sure, that's not good. I, I don't think anyone would. No, no, wait, wait. I, I haven't heard that. I never heard that allegation. That's Somebody the al that's the, the allegation. He talked about it on Rogan, and Rogan defended him, said he never did that. I don't know, and I'm not coming down on either side. I, I don't think I don't think he did. I, I mean, I, like I, I did pay attention to the Jim Fetzer trial, and they were arguing that Fetzer, and I think this is the same thing with Alex Jones, were somehow responsible for the fact that of the large number of people who heard what people like Fetzer and Alex Jones were saying, that a couple of the uh, unbalanced ones went and went harassed and, these people yeah. again i don't i i truly don't know just like i i have a biology degree i cannot speak on the formulation of cumulonimbus clouds i actually don't know and this is my own ignorance i just haven't read up on it let's just use it theoretically let's just purely theoretical let's say he did that's not a good thing now let's say he didn't and some crazy people went out and did that i'm also not a lawyer i don't know because I always have to be careful on here. I always make sure because I just have to cover my own bases. I'm like, by the way, I'm not calling for violence. If somebody ever gets, you know, if I have on like some special forces guys and they get all riled up and they're like, you, you know, I'm like, I, I don't know what the legal like boundaries are. So by the way, I'm not calling for violence just on, I imagine one day I'll be before a, a Senate testimony. But <laughs> that being said, short of actually harming people, I really don't see any problem with questioning anything and everything well what if it's you know the idea that i think tim dylan said it best he was like you need alex jones not because he's like well he is he is right about something i mean he called epstein's island years before people even thought it existed that yeah, you gotta give credit where credit's due 
But you need an Alex Jones. You need someone. Because a populist has to have the adult ability to discern for themselves what is real and what is not. You don't give it over to the government because, and I know it's surprising, they will abuse that gatekeeping power. You have to, what if you get duped? Yeah, I've been duped before. I've been duped on this podcast. You know what? It's a shitty feeling. And I remember that shitty feeling. And now I'm even more careful when I'm reading into something. So if you believe that dinosaurs live in the center of the earth, and then you look like an idiot, there's no harm in that. You learn, just like you learn not to touch a hot stove, or you learn not to you know, be a terrible boyfriend and get dumped, or be an asshole friend and then lose your friends. You learn from that. You have to be able to discern. No one can do it for you. So the idea of, well, what if you propagate fake news and misinformation? People are adults. They can figure it out. They can decide what they want. And they can either figure it out and realize they were duped, and that's a terrible feeling. Or, like we're seeing now, you can have the opposite effect, where the people I interviewed got me banned, Dr. Malone, Dr. McCullough, saying these vaccines aren't there, that what they're all cracked up to be, that they are dangerous that they are suppressing alternative treatments. And now that wall is breaking down and we're seeing that that was the truth. And that resulted in thousands and thousands of deaths. So you have to pick apart anything and everything you see because ultimately the truth will survive brutal examination. It's the needle in the haystack. Take a flamethrower to the haystack. The needle will exist. It might be glowing red, but it will exist. That's what the truth is. And so if someone is getting in front of it and defending it, it is probably not strong enough to stand on its own. And I, so kind of full circle, that's why I will always love conspiracy theories because it should be able to withstand any and all critique. And when people get in front of it and start screaming, don't question this, it has the exact opposite effect. You're just like, well, why are you covering this up? How come I can't look at it? So I don't know. That's my two cents on it. I don't yeah, know why absolutely. I was going with that. No, I think you're right. And I think there's a pattern behind a lot of the so-called conspiracy theories. That is that, uh, for instance, with JFK and 9-11, if you look closely at both of those events, you find uh, very similar forces, and if not individuals, it's a little bit too far separate in history. But the forces behind the two events are are very similar, if not identical. In both cases, I think you know, what you have are a, a kind of a radical uh, imperialist element mm -hmm. of the U.S. national security complex, which overlaps a bit with organized crime because these people are ruthless and so they don't have to always follow the law. And we all know that CIA has some black ops people who don't necessarily believe in always following the law. So you get these kinds of overlaps between the extremist branch of the military industrial complex, national security complex and organized crime. And then you also have a uh, kind of a wild card, which is the Israeli Zionist element, which I believe played a role in both events. Uh, and, there's you know, great, greatly disproportionate power in the hands of a very small minority of people who are 
really conditioned to be kind of fanatical partisans of uh, of Israel, you know, just in the same way we have fanatical partisans of, of the United States empire and of other countries. Each country has their own fanatics, of course. But these fanatics in the U.S. national security complex kind of overlap a little bit with the other two categories, that is organized crime and uh, and the Israelis. And it seems to me that in the cases of both 9-11 and JFK, we had essentially coups that were perpetrated by people right there at the kind of the junction of that overlap. And specifically, uh, the key guy to look at in the JFK event is James Jesus Angleton, mm -hmm. who was the head of counterintelligence for the CIA, as well as the, the liaison with the Israeli Mossad, very yeah. much at the founding of both the Mossad and the CIA. And then uh, with 9-11, we have, of course, PNAC, uh, the Project for the New yeah. American Century, which, again, has a whole roster of people who are both on the record as being radical pro-U.S. imperialists and also radical pro-Israel imperialists. You know, they they want the U.S. to go out and, and pound a bunch of people, and specifically they want the U.S. to go pound the enemies of Israel. So in, in both cases, I think we had essentially coups by this hardline element of our own national security complex that also includes people who are kind of pro-Israel fanatics. And I think one of the biggest reasons, if not the biggest reason, that JFK was killed was to stop him from shutting down the Israeli nuclear program. You know, JFK was absolutely dedicated to non-proliferation. That was part of his peace mission. And if he, if he had lived and then his brother had succeeded him in 19, uh, what would have been 68, there would never have been an Israeli nuclear weapons program. And Ben Gurion was absolutely dedicated to that nuclear program. And he and the, and the rest of the Zionist brain trust felt that it was uh, an existential concern for the Israelis. So that, I think, was a key uh, element of, of what happened to JFK. They put in Johnson, who was Israel's man. I mean, he was literally, you know, his mistress was the, the wife of the Israeli ambassador, as I recall. And he, he was, you know, Johnson was just an Israeli puppet. And the USS Liberty incident was, of course, uh, you know, Johnson Wild. was put in there to do that, right? Johnson was put in there so Israel could wage its war of aggression in 1967 and steal a bunch of territory with the guy in the White House that they owned. And indeed, they were plotting with Johnson to try to pull the U.S. into that war. And they plotted to sink the American uh, spy ship to create an incident to be blamed on Egypt, bring the U.S. into the war in a big way. And of course, that fell through when the heroic sailors of the Liberty were able to keep it afloat. So... That this then when we look at 9-11, we have the same kind of situation where we have the Israelis feeling an existential dread of the way things are going, right? If, if things just continue the way they're going, Israel is doomed. Uh, Israel was hemorrhaging money. Uh, they, they were going bankrupt and uh, they were losing people. People were fleeing, getting second passports in 2000 and the first part of 2001. The country was going under. Naomi Klein has written about this in The Shock Doctrine. And without 9-11, Israel very well might have gone under my, by now. But what they did was in early 2001, Israel uh, just took all of what little money it had after it had uh, gotten totally clobbered by the dot-com uh, bubble pop. And they put all, all their chips into security startups. And so when 9-11 happened, they hit the jackpot. And to this day, Israel is the leader in quote unquote security anti-terror uh stuff all over the world and they've been you know doing quite well financially from that ever since 
uh, they were able to crush the Palestinians, crush the Intifada, uh, and the suicide bombings, right, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So basically, 9-11 helped Israel to survive, just like killing JFK helped Israel to survive if you think they have to be so nasty that they need those nuclear weapons to stay stay there. So so in both cases, I think we had, we had these Israelis who were justifiably uh, in fear of the future of their country, sure. uh, who had tons of power in the United States and who interfaced with radical extremist American imperialists to pull off these two coups. And uh, yeah, I, I think Lauren Guyano has done a good job in writing about this. I translated one of his books from Yahweh to Zion. He's a French historian. Uh, he's also written a book called uh, JFK 9-11 that uh, fleshes out some of what I just said. So that's my interpretation. Of course, it's not very popular uh, in many quarters. You know, of course, you, know, you say anything about Israel and Jews, and that's the first thing that's going to get you censored. That, of course, and, and talking about COVID during the COVID crisis. Yeah. But, you know, I, I think we need to, the, the more something is censored, the more we need to talk about it. And this, I, I think that's certainly the case with these horrific coups, these bloody coups that we had in 1963 and 2001 that really damaged our uh, efforts to keep a democratic republic going. Yeah, examine it fearlessly. And you might, there might be nothing there. That's the, but James Jesus Angleton, uh, the Ghost by Jefferson Morley is a great book, and I've, I've interviewed him a couple times about it. Oh, really? Cool. Uh, oh, yeah. Dude, James Jesus Angleton had a file on Lee Harvey Oswald starting in 1959. Like, that's Harry. And he was, I think the Mossad even had, like, a, they made, like, a special, like, marble placard during his death. All the heads of the Mossad went, and it's, like, one of those eternal flames or something, like, in Israel. Yeah, they and, have a monument. Uh, yeah. yeah, and... Uh, and uh, it is alleged, um, Jefferson Morley alleges that uh, James Jesus Angleton allowed the uh embezzlement of nuclear designs and fissile material from I can't remember the name of the, the company, I think it was somewhere in like Pittsburgh or something in Pennsylvania. Yeah, 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 I, have, yeah. I have a book about that, I'm somewhere yeah. on my shelf. <laughs> he had he had the he had he helped he allegedly helped them embezzle material to be a a a a nuclear force and then i also don't i mean i always have to look at all sides of it i also don't view it as you know maybe i should but i also don't i also don't necessarily view it as like oh evil twiddling your mustache if you're in the middle of the middle east where the leaders of other nations are tweeting like kill the vermin i mean i've interviewed uh, one of the first guys i ever interviewed uh, like 20 episodes in was this uh, uh Israeli um member of Sire at their special forces and yeah when you when you live in that center of people who truly believe you are not just someone that isn't worthy of life and that can be cast aside but that they need to go on a vendetta to an actual jihad to wipe you out yeah, I, I also kind of understand. Now, I don't know if James Jesus Angleton helped embezzle, and clearly I'm uh, I'm pro-America. I don't know if he helped embezzle fissile material. I don't know if he was a true believer. Maybe he saw it as, and that's the other thing is, you ha and I don't, I don't know which one's more dangerous. Is it an evil U.S. national security state, military, industrial, banking, pharma apparatus, whatever you want to call it, the deep state, the Illuminati, the New World Order, whatever, the elite, 
are they evil? Are they just true believers who are at the very top? And because they are true believers, there are no challengers. I mean, you said the CIA uh, interviewed Doug Valentine, his book, The CIA as Organized Crime. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, I have to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's um, are you just are they just true believers? Do they believe in an an American world, an imperialist world? And you you cannot ignore. I mean, Smedley Butler uh, wars a racket, but then um, what is I think Gangsters of Capitalism is also about him, and. Every time they go somewhere, U.S. business interests follow. And you you cannot ignore that. You cannot ignore the defense budget ballooning going into Vietnam. You cannot ignore, even if it wasn't an intentional coup. Let's say 9-11 really was 19 hijackers with box. Let's just, whatever. Let's play with that. There was still a coup. There was an undeniable coup. A coup against your civil liberties of NSA domestic surveillance. James Bamford, again, goes into Israel in Unit 8200 and their ties with the uh, the NSA right after 9-11. There is a coup in, in, in your ability to speak freely and not be surveilled. When Snowden blows the whistle, he's ostracized as a demon. There was an undeniable coup. We went over to the Middle East and killed 1.5 million civilians and lost, what, 7,500 American men and women and it has, that doesn't hold a candle to the 22 veterans a day that commit suicide and then the untold millions with PTSD. There was an undeniable coup. To think that there might not have been some aligned forces is at the at the best ignorant and childish. We see it we see it in the NFL trying to get away with performance-enhancing drugs or deflating the football just to get a leg up to get into the playoffs. We see it all the time. We're seeing right now with the FTX scandal. We saw it in 2008 where it will do anything, cut any quarter, buy off any regulator. Why in God's name would that, that trajectory as the numbers increase from thousands to millions to billions to trillions as the assets increase from Super Bowl trophies to New York penthouses to military dominance and warm water ports spanning the globe, why would that trajectory suddenly stop when you get to the rarefied air of controlling the future of mankind and the U.S. empire? It's just we just reached this black hole where what that wouldn't happen. No one would ever do that. It... It boggles my mind. And uh, Will Arkin was a former Army intelligence guy. He's written some great books about surveillance. Another one, The Generals Have No Clothes. And he has a, a he has a book uh, on that day about 9-11. And then he has his own fictional take on 9-11. Called yeah, he, didn't he just write History in One Act? History in One Act. Yeah, yeah. I'm still looking at, into that, thinking about uh, interviewing good. him. Although his interpretation appears to be very different from mine. But... Maybe not. Well, nonetheless, he goes into it. And this is the one I like to look at is is like because this one's maybe the most palatable to people who won't even touch it. Is that. No, it wasn't orchestrated by the U.S. and Dick Cheney. But. It was picked up on surveillance. They saw it happening. 
And true, someone will talk. I mean, even the Manhattan Project had uh, Klaus Fuchs and the Rosenbergs in it. You can, nothing's 100%. You can't compartmentalize everything. Even Bob Lazar got out of Area 51. There would be no more organic way than to pick up an actually organic movement. Now, who, who's funding them? Is it the Bin Laden group? Is it the, the Carlisle group with the Saudi? Who knows? But to pick up an organic movement and to look the other way, if you will, and to let it happen. To me, that is like the most palatable to someone that doesn't even want to entertain the idea. Well, yeah, that, that's the why hop. Uh, there's, you know, my that's the, versus that's my the, hop. That's the spoonful let it of sugar. That, that's the spoonful of sugar. Right. But the problem with that, like if, sure. I, if I got Arkin on the show and, and explain, had to explain to him why he's wrong, I would say, okay, you're, you're right. Uh, there was, there's this so-called Al-Qaeda quote unquote movement, which is really just a loose informal network. Where did it come from? It was actually built by the, Ameri yeah, the Americans and the Saudis. Right. When 9-11 happened, Mohammed Haikel, who's the Arab world's most respected commentator who had worked at a very high level in the Egyptian government, stepped forward and said, this is impossible. He said, when I worked for the Egyptian government, part of my job involved surveilling Al-Qaeda. We had people, we, we had total surveillance, total cover of, of every bit of Al-Qaeda, and we weren't the only ones. Uh, several other Middle Eastern governments did, the Israelis did, the Americans did. Everybody, like nobody in Al-Qaeda could go to the bathroom without, you know, hearing hearing the drips, right? And so basically he said, you know, we had them completely covered. There's no way they could get away with something like this. And their capabilities were nothing even remotely close to that. So, uh, and, and basically the whole Arab and Islamic world responded that way because the, they all know that. Now, given that, given that this was this group was created by the United States in conjunction with its Saudi puppet, Saudi Arabia has been an American puppet. It started just the past year. Maybe it's moving away from that. And then given that we anybody with eyes can see that the World Trade Center was taken down by explosives. Anybody with eyes can see that this, this is not the result of a plane crash and, and fires, kerosene fires, kerosene kindling office fires. The official story is that all of that damage was done by ordinary office fires. It wouldn't have mattered whether they were kindled with some jet fuel kerosene or whether it was a guy with a, a match lighting a wastebasket fire. Same thing. And obviously that didn't happen these buildings disappeared at free fall acceleration through the path of most resistance uh there was a countdown that went out over police radio multiple witnesses to that on uh, building seven so th that's been established beyond any doubt that the world trade center towers and indeed the entire trade center was destroyed with some kind of explosive high energy devices now once we know that then this cannot possibly be a let it happen on purpose thing. Just like once we know that Al-Qaeda was completely 100% covered by multiple intelligence agencies and indeed was created by those agencies, we know that it, it can't be just a let it happen on purpose. Uh, and, and let's just imagine that there were an independent Al-Qaeda, which there never was. Uh, but if there had been, and they were planning to fly planes into buildings, uh, there's no way that if you wanted to let it happen on purpose, 
you could possibly just sit back and let them fly planes into buildings and then have those buildings taken down by controlled demolition somehow. It's not going to happen. Those buildings were the tallest buildings. Even Building 7 was twice as tall as the tallest building ever taken down in a controlled demolition in all of history up to that point. And the towers were were twice that height. So they were four times as tall as the tallest building ever destroyed with explosives. So whoever did this was using uh, very advanced uh, controlled demolitions techniques on these three buildings. It would have required a lot of effort, expertise, and money to get those buildings and the entire trade center complex actually ready to destroy. So are you going to let a bunch of doofuses who can't even be allowed to solo in Cessnas which is that the 9-11 commission told us the best pilot of the 9-11 hijacker pilots was Hanny Hendrew. And he was such a bad pilot that his uh, flight instructors wouldn't let him solo in a Cessna training aircraft. The idea that such a person could possibly take over the controls of a jetliner, turn it around, make a beeline for Twin Towers, uh, or in the case of Hanny Hendrew, uh, yeah, he would, he would the Pentagon and fly these trajectories and make these hits that they're alleged to have made is completely ludicrous. So if you were going to do a lie hop scenario, let it happen on purpose, and you wanted a big event, you didn't want just uh, a, another failed hijacking. There, there hadn't been a single successful hijacking of any American aircraft since the 1970s. And there are technical reasons for that, such as the uninterruptible autopilot, which is what was probably used to take over planes and fly them on that day. In any case, if you wanted to just sit back and let things happen on purpose, what would you get? You would you would get a bunch of total incompetence making a ridiculous and failed attempt to even take over an aircraft, much less fly it at all, much less hit anything, much less have the buildings that they hit in New York explode uh, at freefall acceleration and disappear, killing thousands of people. That just couldn't happen. So if you wanted a big event, you couldn't let it happen on purpose. You would have to make it happen. You would have to make sure that planes hit those buildings to create the fireballs that could be filmed, et cetera, et cetera. And then you, you would have to blow up the buildings yourself. And that's, of course, what they did. So it, it wasn't and couldn't possibly have been a LIHOP scenario. And that's why people like Arkin are just deceiving themselves. They apparently won't take the five minutes it takes to look at Building 7 and see what happened. Fair enough. It's... um. Yeah, the one thing I always think about is, and it's kind of like a weird. It's almost maybe I'm just patting myself on the back, but it almost feels like a like a, if there's if a tree falls in the woods and there's no one around to hear, it doesn't make a noise. The philosophical kind of postulation I came up with a couple of years ago, and it still bugs me, is why haven't we seen a single car bomb in the United States since nine eleven? Or ever, but let's just say 9 11. I guess technically, well, Oklahoma City, there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of questions around that. Terrence Yee, Dwight Life. But let's, yeah. let's, st- let's stick to this one just for car bombs. Because true, true terror, right? It's more of the death by a thousand paper cuts. It's you get into the psyche of the population. A cafe is going to blow up, somebody at a mosque. You know, a child walking up to a U.S. Army outpost with a bomb on his head. It's all very, it's limited in its technological ingenuity, but it's effective in its psychological effect. You know, this car coming towards this checkpoint, light it up. We don't know what's in it. Car bombs are terrifying. You know, I've, I've, I've interviewed tons of Delta Force, and they, they're like, yeah, you shoot it, kill it. 
Maybe it's unfortunately, sometimes it's a mom and they're just driving fast, but that thing's coming towards you. Even the most unskilled explosive expert can still make a horrifying bomb. Why haven't we seen one of those in the United States? Well, it's actually, there's a good, a book called Dying to Win by Professor Robert Pape that actually explains that. Okay. which is that what we call terrorism, the word terrorism as we use it, really is applied to people who are trying to overthrow foreign occupation of their territory. And the Tamil Tigers invented it. They're a secular radical group in Sri Lanka, and it's been applied in all sorts of other places. So yeah, they'll blow stuff up to get you out of occupying their territory. But they're not stupid enough to think that coming to your territory and blowing things up is somehow going to get you to leave and especially blowing something, blowing up something big, like the twin towers, they would obviously know that. I mean, any, any strategist, I mean, I, I, when I say they, I, I could include myself. I happen to be Muslim and I happen to think that from an American perspective, we should be a Republic, not an empire. And so I'm just about ready to fight to get rid of our empire. And as a Muslim, I'm just about ready to join with my fellow Muslims and fight to get the American empire out of Muslim lands. So I actually agree with basically the sort of, you know, loosely described sort of, you know, mission statement of something like Al-Qaeda in that sense. And yet I couldn't imagine anybody who had those strategic aims to be stupid enough to think that blowing up big buildings in New York would somehow help. Uh, yeah, attacking the American occupying forces where they're occupying things, yeah, that would help. So you read Robert Pape's book, Dying to Win, The Strategic Logic of Suicide Terrorism, and he, he studied every suicide terror event that had happened up to the point that he wrote the book. So this every time it always happens in the occupied country. It's always occupied people trying to get rid of what they view as foreign occupation. So that's why we haven't seen any car, car bombs in the U.S. It's a fair point. I hadn't thought about that. My, I guess that just kind of shot down my my philosophical itch. I figured it was either the surveillance state is so good that they stopped 100% of them. Why would 9-11 have happened? Or it's because that threat doesn't exist. But I guess that is a third option I had thought of. Well, no, the threat doesn't exist. Nobody wants to blow up American civilians in the United States. I hadn't thought about that. Using it to remove an occupy. I guess you could say, yeah, we saw. I don't think we saw. I don't think we saw kamikaze pilots on Pearl Harbor. I think we saw them surrounding the Japanese mainland. I guess that would that would support that hypothesis. Well, no, that that's different. That that's a war between states. You know, the United okay. States versus Japan is a whole different scenario. But what Robert Pape is talking about is populations that feel occupied. Whether it's the Irish feeling occupied or the British or the Tamils being occupied, uh, feeling occupied in Sri Lanka, or, uh, you know, Arabs feeling like part of their land, the most important, or some of the very most important part of their land is occupied by the Israelis, et cetera, et cetera, or the Iraqis feeling they're occupied by the Americans, the Afghan people feeling occupied by the Americans. That's where you get these suicide terror attacks. So then, <clears throat> how would have, how would have, how would have nine? What is what is your running? Because for me, I've always kind of leaned more on the. I hadn't heard that phrase, but lie hop. Let it happen. To me, that's just the Occam's. In in my mind, that's just what it is. Um, what is your hypothesis on what what exactly happened? Because we like like JFK, we can get as close to the truth as possible, but we're probably never gonna know. Like we're never gonna get the the schematics with Dick Cheney's fingerprint 
right? We're never going to get the the reel of James Jesus Angleton saying on tape, Lee Harvey is going to, right? It's just not because they hit it so well, but because they're smart enough to never record it. What's your, I guess, to- totality, in totality hypothesis of 9-11, of like what exactly was carried out on that day? Mm-hmm. Just out of my own curiosity, non non judgmental, just my own curiosity. Okay, I, yeah, I think that um, the to the extent that anything called Al Qaeda was involved, I think there might have been. Okay, we've got these original nineteen guys, uh, and the fifteen of them who happened to be Saudis were brought over to the United States on a uh, a snitch visa program, meaning that they were CIA assets in Saudi Arabia who were used to taking money being told what to do. And as a reward for that, they're given a visa and a handful of cash to come have fun in the United States. This is a program that, I mean, lots of people, a lot more than those 15, hundreds, thousands of Saudi nationals have uh, gone through that program. And I have this from a guy whose brother-in-law is in the CIA, who, who knows that these guys were in fact in that program. So they were brought over and the they were surveilled and in some cases doubled by presumably Israeli intelligence above all, uh, although perhaps working with uh, an American, it may, there may have been a unit that was a joint Israeli-American unit, and some of them were doubled. That is, uh, for instance, uh, Ziad Jara was a Lebanese guy whose whole family uh, works on uh, drugs, uh, narcotics for the Mossad. They're all employed by the Mossad, and he he is too. This actually came out. One of them got their cover got blown a while back. Anyway, so Zio Jara, who's a, a Mossad drug producer and smuggler, uh, if you look at the the pictures of him, uh, all supposedly are pictures of the same 9/11 hijacker. What you see is that there are three different people, totally different people, and radically different. They're, it's not even close. So there were two at least two of those ziajaras were were fake ziajaras run by intelligence agencies i think the same was done with some of the others including perhaps muhammad Atta. the original Atta mm-hmm. from germany and egypt was a very shy soft-spoken painfully shy individual the muhammad Atta in florida according to his uh, green-haired or pink-haired stripper girlfriend amanda keller was fluent in hebrew which the original Atta, of course didn't speak a word of uh, and was extremely loud, rude, boisterous, and kind of psychopathic. Uh, when he got angry at her, he disemboweled her kitten. Uh, so the, the personalities of the original Ada and the Florida Ada are so radically different. People interested in some of this can read Daniel Hopsicker's book, Welcome to Terrorland. Uh, and so anyway, my hypothesis here is that the uh, certain people in the American uh, call it deep state, including Cheney and Rumsfeld, and Wol- especially Wolfowitz, would have uh, signed off on some kind of provocation scheme that would have been ostensibly designed perhaps to bring the U.S. into Afghanistan. And then Mossad uh, or whoever, the Israeli side, would have been invited to play Team B. And so they were kind of invited in and allowed to go about their business. And I think the Israeli side certainly arranged for the demolition of the Twin Towers and perhaps most of the uh, shenanigans with the aircraft. And they would have had a certain amount of uh, uh, clout in the corrupt, ele- you know, certain corrupt elements of the U.S. military. Uh, so ultimately, how this would have been run would be that 
planes were flown by remote control uh, into targets. Now, whether there were four civilian passenger aircraft as advertised, and those were uh, taken over and flown to their uh, crash sites uh, by remote control, which is one scenario, or whether at least a couple of them, and maybe uh, more than one of them, in fact, uh, crossed paths with drone aircraft, just like in Northwoods, and then uh, landed, disappeared, and then drone aircraft went and did the crashes. That's an ongoing debate, but doesn't really matter. End of the day, large aircraft were remote flown uh, to their crash sites, and then the entire World Trade Center complex was destroyed with some high-energy explosive process. And I don't know for sure uh, how to describe that one and precisely you know, how much of it was nanothermite, how sure. much of it was whatever else. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, again, you have to draw on Northwoods and look at what has actually, it's why I always draw, it's why I don't sit on here and talk about vaccines. It's why I bring on Dr. Malone or McCullough. It's why I don't, I'm not going to talk about uh, the invasion of Panama. I'll have on the Delta Force guys that spearheaded it. I don't talk about Black Hawk Down. I'll bring on Mike Durant. It's why I always point to Eisenhower and Smedley Butler. The, the most qualified guys in the world to talk about it have seen the entrenched system. So that being said, you have to look at Northwoods and go like, look at what was proposed by the Joint Chiefs. Of State. Not some not some wild young Tommy Kerrigan who's trying to make a name for himself. And I'm like, hey, maybe we should blow up jetliners in Miami. And they're like, get the fuck out of here. The highest of the high. Okay, sure. Hide Cold War, all right, yeah, I get it. You know, things are going insane. But the very fact that it was proposed, you don't have to be for or against. Maybe you're a true believer and you go, it takes a couple of eggs to make an omelet. All right. Maybe you're like, hey, they're all demons. The military industrial complex got to go. Okay, whatever. Regardless of it, it doesn't need your approval. It exists. It was printed. It was drawn up. And JFK rejected it. That's a fact. It just is. You don't have to like it. It just is. You have to draw on that. And not only by not only the of what the idea is, a very blatant and masterfully orchestrated intricate false flag. You also have to look at the very technologies they wanted to use. To not at least exist. And I get it. It's not a fun feeling. It's not a fun feeling when you, you know, realize your friends are talking about you. It's not a fun feeling when you realize you're getting cheated on. I love the United States. Clearly I do. You know, I I always talk about it. My 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 great uncle was 18 on D-Day. That, that you know, I, I just interviewed Charlie Duke walking on the moon, talks about his chest swelling with pride. I love it. I understand it has its flaws. Some of my best friends are immigrants from Bulgaria and Kosovo. They love this place more than I do. It's not a fun feeling to start to look at it and go, maybe it's not all it's cracked up to be. It's it's a shit. I've had on Delta Force guys who talk about, you know, in hindsight, was I just fodder? That's not a fun feeling. So I think an immediate rejection is because you, you don't want to entertain it. The thought is too scary and disheartening. I mean, I lost a brother to suicide in 2014. There's not a day that goes by that I don't think of him. And yet, including the really shitty feeling of the reality is, is there's I probably could have done more. You can tell yourself no. Your therapist can tell you no. 
you and your family can reaffirm no. But deep down, I know there's things I could have, and that's not a fun feeling. There's no spoonful of sugar. It fucking sucks. So I get that hesitation. But you have to, the truth doesn't care. It, General Lemnitzer does not care what you think about Operation Northwoods. That plan existed physically on paper with ink. It existed. So you have to examine subsequent events with that knowledge. And yeah, I don't think we can turn a blind eye to it. I don't. I don't if know how to fix the situation. Exactly. You, know. you have to diagnose it. At the very least, you have to point it. It's what uh, Nick Bryant said in his book, The Franklin Scandal, about mm -hmm. uh, human trafficking, child trafficking. and That's uh, a great book. Fantastic. Yeah. Book. Anybody who scoffs at, uh, at Pizzagate and things like that, yeah, maybe Pizzagate isn't exactly 100% correct. But yeah, re read, uh, read, read the Franklin, Franklin Scandal. Scandal. Your brain will... I got turned on to it by Tim Dillon. He's my favorite comedian of all people, Tim Dillon. But uh, yeah, he talks about the Franklin County. He, he interviewed Nick Bryan. I finally was like, all right, I'll listen to it. This is like a BBC veteran reporter. And he's talking about like your firsthand events of like kids that were raped by guys wearing goat heads. And you're listening to it and your brain's melting out of your ears. Um, but what he says towards the end, he's like, I don't think I'm necessarily going to personally change it in my life. I don't know if I'll ever see it. Because the very first thing is diagnosing it, putting it out and going, this is happening. That's the very first. You have to take the first step. You might not successfully climb Mount Everest. You got to at least put your shoes on. And I think that's where I come back. Not only do I love conspiracy theories and just the the, in, the challenging intellectual uh, game of chess they are. But you have to, at the very least, put it out there and at least start addressing it. Um but kind of to go to like something like Pizzagate, there's also, it's an intricate game of you also have to know what is purposely poisoning the well, what is too extravagant, right? Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask you, what, what do you think of a, of a Dr. Judy Wood's hypothesis that it was an orbital or a space-based directed energy weapon? It's... She gives a great talk on it, but I'm always looking at it like, is this to poison the well? Because it just seems like it's 10 steps too complicated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I don't find the space-based platform argument very strong. It's I had her on my show. I don't remember her even quite going all the way and saying, I mean, she kind of implies that, but she, she never really stated it clearly. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I think her work is valuable. I own her book. And I think she does raise some good questions about, you know, was there something, uh, some form of energy being used here, uh, whether it's mini nukes, which would be the easy answer. I mean, we mm -hmm. know that that uh, relatively clean mini nukes exist. Mm -hmm. they, they've existed you know, since they had Davy Crockett. Davy Crockett, Crockett, Crockett that's since 1960. Yeah. It's been around <laughs> yeah. forever. Right. And then they, they came up with neutron bombs where you can basically uh, control what kind of radiation comes out of the bomb and so on. So yeah, directed energy weapon, that's a, that's a mini nuke. Uh, that is a kind of a directed energy weapon. So yeah, I think she, she raises a lot of good questions. It's interesting research. And I would actually recommend people do buy and read her book. However, I don't think she makes a very good case for anything space-based. 
And she kind of lays a lot of stuff out without really explaining how it would fit with her theory, such as uh, this Hurricane Aaron that was bearing down on New York on yeah. 9-11-2001. Then it kind of changed direction. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm glad you brought that up, Judy. But that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with a space-based weapon. And and she gets into the Hutchison effect, which mm -hmm. is, very again, very interesting. However, the the overall effect of all of this, it does get a little bit close to what sounds like beneficial cognitive diversity is what Cass Sunstein mm. says the government needs to do to try to stop the 9-11 truth movement and other conspiracy movements is to in, uh, inject beneficial cognitive diversity by infiltrating the movements and uh, and injecting that diversity. And I think what he means by that is, of course, to be putting in flat earth and uh, maybe QAnon, you know, th these kinds of things. Now, Judy Wood's work I don't think is is quite that bad, but it certainly did cause all kinds of dissension and controversy in the 9-11 truth movement. It disabled uh, one of probably the most effective 9-11 activists here in Wisconsin. I know once he became a Judy Wood fanatic, then that was it. He wasn't doing any more activism and he hated everybody else in the truth movement that didn't agree with him. So, yeah, there's been a certain disruptive effect there, uh, but I still think uh, her book is worth reading. Yeah, it's a it's kind of funny. A lot of the things that like led to these like rabbit holes I went down over the years was for you know several years after my brother died having crippling anxiety and trying not to use medication. I would just listen to videos as I fell asleep. And one of them I listened to, I didn't read her book, but I listened to a like, three hour lecture by her. And she says, I think somewhere in the first 10 minutes, she has one sentence where she goes in a space based directed energy. That's the only time I've ever heard her say it. But that was one of the lectures I would listen to. I just thought she had a calming voice. And wow. I ended up well, listening that, to it so many that times. Must been, that must have been a hard period in your life. I mean, yeah. And, and then listening to that to relax. Wow. I don't know if that would work. For yeah. Me. That's, yeah. That's a good, that's a good, good observation. It, it was a horrible several year period of my life. But I would, I would listen to like Bob Lazar interviews. A lot of it was just like ASMR. It just kind of made me relax without having to take like a Benadryl or something. And then I listened to it so many hundreds of times. I'd eventually just be like, well, look into that. And, you know, that then that's, led me down an irreversible rabbit hole but i look at that and i'm like that's too i don't know is she again is she an example of of lee hop or my hop it's like is she organic cognitive dissonance or is it intentional it's the rabbit hole gets deeper the the wilderness of mirrors gets more uh gets more expansive is it there to muddy the waters is that someone actually genuinely trying to figure it out i don't know it, i tend to look at it as like it's the opposite of occam's razor it's you, you want the closest thing to occam's razor and then if you look like you pointed out well it wouldn't work if these guys can't pilot a cessna alone your occam's razor bound or lowest level then you'd almost have to raise up and say well it'd have to be somewhat more intricate when it gets to orbital based directed energy weapons it seems almost a little it's too much it's it's too far it's i well, mean it's, it's the physics of it uh there's there's really no evidence that i know of that there is any such weapon that could be deployed in space yeah I, and i i've talked with somebody who has a pretty good handle on that stuff the late dr bob bowman who was one of the really uh, most uh, competent people in the 9-11 truth movement. He had been the head of the Star Wars program under oh, yeah. Presidents Ford and Carter, and he resigned as a whistleblower because that was an offensive rather than a defensive program. And he so he knew what was up there. 
and he did you know he's he's able to talk about a couple of classified things because they were accidentally sort of semi declassified when some general blurted out the fact that this exists so he he told me about these what they did have i mean they had artificial meteorites mm -hmm. even back in the 70s uh drop it from space acts like a meteorite takes out the other guy's missile silo uh, they had uh something that could supposedly set fire to a city from space uh so they had, yeah, there are these these kinds of weapons in space that we probably don't know about that are classified. Whether it's something that could do what was done to the Trade Center, I've never seen any evidence that such a thing exists. And Dr. Bob Bowman had a, I thought, a good common sense approach to 9-11 when he said, well, you know, if I reverse engineer this, if I were the bad guys, and how, how would I do it? He said, I would just remotely hijack passenger planes, fly them into targets, and then blow up the buildings with the most immediately available technology that could be used to create a big fireplace. Remember, this is like a Hollywood script. Mm -hmm. This is, you know, you, you, it's, I had on a, somebody who's an expert in scripting and storyboarding for both advertisements and commercial movies and TV shows who said the way that they would have done 9-11 would be to, you know, first, like in any storyboard that becomes the basis of a script, it's like a cartoon. So you start out with, a couple of the frames, the key frames that you want to have the most effect on the audience. And in this case, it would have been the fireball of the plane, the plane crash and fireball, and then the uh, people eating clouds, chasing people through the streets of New York, right? These were the key images that were the most traumatizing images that created the effect they needed for 9-11. So they would sketch out and, and storyboard it and stuff. And so to get those images, to get the, those fireball, plane crash fireball images, and to get the exploding buildings and, and people eating pyroclastic cloud images, how would they do that? What would be the simplest way to do that? So Dr. Bob Bowman, the guy who knows what's in space, or at least what was in space a decade or two ago, and probably knows what's up there now, you know, he's, he's saying, yeah, you would just remote fly planes into targets, and then you would uh, blow up the buildings using straightforward explosives, well, whatever they were. I mean. Maybe maybe mini nukes would be included. I don't know. Um, yeah, Lieutenant General James Abramson headed up SDI, and there are some great interviews of him on YouTube from like the eight. And the stuff he's just talking about openly on like PBS interviews is is mind boggling. And then you have to wonder, well, the Cold War still going on? Was that a psyop? You don't know. But the stuff that he's just talking about nonchalantly is like directed energy weapons, particle beams. Um, I think it was DARPA or something or Sandia. Had um or Los Al one of the dark labs had created uh the Shiva star in like 1990, mm -hmm. and it's this like I don't understand it. It's it's some like capacitor bank that could shoot toroid plasma balls, and this isn't a typo. Ten thousand kilometers a second, and I understand what that speed is. I don't mean ten thousand kilometers an hour or ten thousand meters a second. They said ten thousand kilometers a second. Again, you don't, you never know if that's a psyop to make the other guys think we have it. But this was going on in the eighties. That's pretty insane. I mean, the Sprint ABM missile, zero to Mach ten, and what is it like four seconds in the sixties? And then there was another one after that called Hybex, which was I think zero to Mach ten in two seconds. Before JFK was whacked, like no, it's it's this stuff is alien, but. Yeah, you have to look at what would be the most simple thing. The most simple yeah. thing. It has to be reliable. I mean, they, yes. have, to, they have to know what's going to work. Yeah. You don't want to use you don't want to use the the bleeding edge thing on 
the very special mission, right? You 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 want something that's reliable. You want the old AK forty seven. You want the thing that never breaks. You want the Humvee. Um, there was an interesting thing I had read about, and it's the idea that um, and oh, and then the and that the thing in space that could set cities on fire. That's directly from Operation Paperclip. Uh, Doctor Vince Houghton, um, of the of the smithsonian i think space or not space a spy museum i've had him on here before he has a great book called nuking the moon and other cold war projects that stayed on the drawing board but yeah one of them were yeah the 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 nazis we brought back here and one of their ideas was it's almost comical how evil they were it was a mirror in space for good and evil purposes and you're like it kind of just feels like they're twiddling their mustache but that was back in like the 40s um but the idea that the actual imagery was so visceral, I don't remember where, so I'm not going to quote it, you know, as as a source. But it was the argument that 9/11 in itself, the the media portrayal of it, was a, a descendant of MK Ultra. It was a it was a mass trauma inducing break from reality and it kind of harkens back to that when you think of december 2019 january 2020 the images from china people just falling over and we now know that even the worst cases of covid you don't just fall over dead in the street like a zombie movie mm-hmm. you gotta yeah, wonder there should be an investigation to figure out where did those images come from who, who put those out there oh uh, well i mean the ccp surprise it's or us i mean i don't know or we released it there yeah yeah i i wouldn't jump to conclusions about the ccp you know yeah now i was uh, saying that out of hand no yeah yeah. or it was us like i don't put it past us at all a hundred if if you don't mind can can we shift to that what what are your thoughts on the origins of of covid i i don't think it's absurd at all to think it's a bioweapon that destabilized the world i i think it's too soon to tell what the big ripples are at first glance you go oh it's china and then you go well it does seem kind of hairy who's it benefiting is it priming us for a war for china i don't know what do you think it was well yeah i'm still pretty open-minded about the big picture but just the in terms of the best arguments that have been made sure uh citing evidence that has strong sources and you know from within sort of the normal set of assumptions about how geopolitics works uh, i think the place to go is the the ron unz book uh, our covid 19 catastrophe as biowarfare blowback and he develops the hypothesis that in uh, 2019 elements of the trump administration probably not including trump himself uh, with people like pompeo uh, being uh, key figures, decided to go ahead and activate and take off the shelf a uh, bioattack plan on China. And of course, this would have been part of a continuing U.S. series of bioattacks on China. Uh, there's a long history of biological warfare. And as in so many other areas, uh, you know, we're number one. Uh, so, yeah, there had been pork flu and and uh, bird flu had mm-hmm. taken out a lot of China's meat supply in 2017, 2018. And then in 2019, suddenly COVID appears. It was seeded probably in you know early November, late October, just in time to appear in Wuhan, the, the transit hub for all of China, 
at the Chinese New Year, which is when most of China is actually passing through Wuhan on the way to visit their relatives to celebrate Chinese New Year. So this popped up in the very worst possible time and place for China. And uh, there's then also the sort of smoking gun of this. I made a video of this called COVID-19 smoking gun. That's it's up at a hundred, it's got 900,000 views now heading for a million. And that video uh, introduces Unz's thesis and points out that the smoking gun is the defense intelligence agency uh, documents showing that they, they actually issued a warning of a terrible pandemic that was brewing in Wuhan, China. And then they issued this warning to U.S. allies uh, around the world and, and our own forces in Asia, especially. And this was in, I believe, November 2019. Oh, God. So nobody could possibly have known that there was a, a anything brewing in Wuhan at that time, except for the perpetrators of a bio attack. And so if we step back and say, well, why would the U.S. try to attack China biologically? Well, give me a break. I mean, read yeah. the Thucydides paradox with you know, yeah. Graham Allison's book. Yeah. That, that, yeah the, the We're 60th, destined for war. Yeah. Yeah. Like three quarters of the time you have a rising number two power and an established number one power. Right. And and the number one power usually starts the war preemptively because the longer they wait, the worse it is for them. Smother them in the cradle. Exactly. So so and so what's what's the real issue with China? Well, it's their growing economy. Mm -hmm. And as far back as 20 early 2010s, I remember uh, various geopolitical experts uh, saying that you know, we're going to have to stop China's economic growth or or slow it, you know, radically slow it, even if that means uh, harming the global economy and our own economy. You know, John Mersheimer wrote a great article about this, pointing this out. You know, he's a very lucid and basically, I think, an okay guy. But, you know, he's, he's one of the people who are willing to talk about this openly that, yeah, the U.S. had to do something about China's economic growth. If things continue the way they were going, uh, then the U.S., loses I and mean, we, we become number two and and usually number one powers don't like that so uh what would you do well you'd have to find some way to try to slow china's economic growth what would you what would that be <laughs> well robert cadillac who was trump's biowar czar has spent his entire career advocating using biological weapons to target and damage adversary economies so trump appointed that guy as the czar of america's oh, bioware program oh god so uh, you, you put two or two together and kind of the most basic, obvious and, and well supported with evidence hypothesis is that that's what's going on here, that the, this was an element of the you know usual neocon lunatics that thought, hey, it'd be a great idea to, you know, we are, hey, we, we got rid of their meat supply and forced them to buy our meat. You know, we hurt their economy, helped our economy two years in a row. That worked fine. And maybe we played around with SARS and mirrors before and that didn't blow back. And so let's do something a little bit you know, t- stronger. Let's hit China with something that could force them to shut down their country, you know, s- slow their GDP growth by several percent, uh, maybe push them into negative growth. You know, and it'll probably be contained there. And even if it isn't, we have the best public health service system in the world, you know, the, the US, U.S. and its allies, we have great public health. And so we'll come out of this okay one way or another. So that might have been the kind of, you know, arrogance and hubris behind this. It just like the same kind of arrogance and hubris behind so many of these things, whether it's 9-11 or whether it's the current war on Russia through Ukraine. So to me, that that kind of fits the evidence best. And that's the best hypothesis. But it's also possible that, let's say, you know, Cadillac, Trump, Pomp- or not Trump, but Pompeo and Cadillac are seeing this as an attack on China. But some of the people who are actually producing the virus and the smarter people 
are plugged into this kind of depopulation network oh. and they're going okay uh and they're like snickering when when pompeo yeah. and cadillac are saying oh this isn't going to blow back it'll be contained in china and those guys are like snickering yeah right it certainly, no, it's, sir, it certainly won't. Uh, and uh and because they actually saw that uh for, from their purposes a global pandemic would be just great uh for malthusian reasons and so mm -hmm. on and so forth and and then it's also possible that there's some combination of the two things that is it's possible that Trump, or not Trump, Trump's not thinking this through Trump's, he's probably not even in the loop, but Pompeo and Cadillac would be saying, okay, let's say it blows back. How bad is that? Well, if we don't do this, China eats our lunch. Mm -hmm. If we do this, we have a world where we're going to decouple from China. You know, our problem with China is like, we can't, do, we can't do anything yeah. against them. Yeah, <laughs> if we do something against them, our economy is shot. And so we need to decouple. We need to start the ball rolling so that we start manufacturing things someplace other than China, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. And a global pandemic would be just the ticket. Secondly, what this is basically an economic race between the U.S. and China. And China's uh, demographic situation, yeah, they're going to have a demographic crisis in a while, but we already have it. U.S. and Europe are already like top heavy with retiring boomers. And that is the single biggest drag on our economic growth. So if this is all about changing that, you know, China double digit economic growth, U.S. 2.5 percent growth and pushing them closer together or even reversing that. OK, the first thing we want to do to help the long term growth in the U.S. and the West is to kill off <laughs> the old boomers or disproportionately a bioweapon that disproportionately takes out retired people who are just a drag on Western economies actually ends up being beneficial in this economic competition with China. So you might have had people who thought that way uh and so you you could have had some combination of the uh, flag-waving patriots mm -hmm. who think that we're going to slow chinese growth and it won't blow back uh malthusian globalists who are like oh the first thing the world needs is a big pandemic to slow population growth etc cetera, etc cetera. and then maybe some in-betweeners who are like think game theory the whole thing out they go you know if the u.s empire has you know just we're going to stand a chance to stop this challenge from china we could really use a global pandemic. <laughs> I think I I agree with pretty much everything you just said. <clears throat> I think it's, I think it was some people looking at the chessboard and going, mm -hmm. it's rising. We're declining. No different than, uh, you know, what was the line from uh, Dr. Strangelove or even real life from Curtis LeMay? You know, we might only lose 20 to 30 America, million Americans. Ops. That's an acceptable loss, sir. That that's how the thoughts go. It just yeah. it's not fun to look at, but that's how these war games go, and that's how that. And who knows? I mean, I don't even know. I'm, you know, I don't have to make those decisions. Who knows? Maybe if I spent twenty years in a nuclear bunker at the top of the government, I'd come out of it and go, "Listen, this is the best case scenario." I don't know that. I'm thirty two. I don't have to think about those things. Uh, you know, I get to play video games tonight. I don't have to think about the future. You know, the the current hegemon. I, it was probably something along those lines and probably was a, it not like all things probably wasn't entirely one or the other. You probably had some Malthusian eugenicists in there. You probably had some, you know, probably had some corporate interests like, oh boy, you know, you know, roll out a vaccine that's mandated, mandated by everyone. Like they're just looking at the short game, just cash money. And then you have, yeah, well, it's a Thucydides trap. If we don't, they will probably think they're the heroes you probably just have some psychopaths in there that are just like yeah fuck, fuck let her rip mm. 
it's probably a mixture of all of this. Hey, pl- uh, plug your stuff. I got to use the restroom. I'll be right back. You, oh, okay. you, good, you good to go for like, a, I don't know, like another 15, 30 minutes, whatever you want? Yeah, sure. Yeah, all 15 right. to 30. That's okay. All right. All right. Tell everybody where to We'll, we'll keep it at a. You're probably going to want to edit that part up. All right, all right. Um, <laughs> I'll I'll let you go in, in fifteen. I won't hold you hostage. Um, there's there's a thousand episodes of me going to the bathroom and the guests are staring at the camera. So don't worry, you're in good company. <laughs> it's it, it's a, it's people are always like that was weird, and I'm like, to me, I look at it one laziness, but two, I look at it as I'm like, it's authentic. It's People a bathroom it. break for the audience too. It is. It's also real. What you think it never happens. You think just, you know, you've never seen it. Someone use the bathroom in a movie. It happens. They just don't film it. Well, think, I assumed you were going to cut it out in the editing room. So uh, it's a good thing. I didn't go and pick my nose or anything. Oh well, yeah. No, I, I always just upload. I mean, the ADL would love, they, they would pay you millions of dollars for footage of me picking my nose. Yeah. Well, fuck that. Didn't they, didn't they came up yesterday or something and say like, like Elon, like Twitter has this like a, on a death list or a death, very, very loving and tolerant of them to say that Twitter's on a death wish or something or a death list. And I think it's it's postulate or it's theorized or maybe it's just bullshit rumors. I don't know. But Twitter might be delisted from the app store, which I mean, there's not more evidence of just, you know, the oh, DHS man. leaks on October 31st from The Intercept about the DHS, uh, about the Department of Homeland Security having back end portals to Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube and Reddit. If there's not any more evidence that Operation Mockingbird is is matured beyond anything we could have ever imagined. It's mm-hmm. that he buys Twitter and the argument goes from it's a private company, you Nazi, to it needs to be taken down by the government. But. If anything, that kind of fuels all of these theories more. Like, yeah, there's an entrenched power structure lurking behind the shadows. Mm. This yeah, is exactly... why, are they so af- why are they so afraid of, of free yeah. speech? I mean, what's, what's that is, about? We, it is. It's sunshine on a vampire. Is that the right yeah. analogy? It, they, they, they're melting. Just let it run. 
Let it fly. If it's wrong, it won't pick up. No one, no one censors like flat earth theories. You just yeah. let them run. Yeah. Well, they don't just let them run. I think they promote them. I, well, mean, I, think, I, they, I, I think they promote that too, but it's... Yeah, I, I think that's the number one example of, of beneficial cognitive diversity. Sure. Yeah, I, I had no idea how, how well-funded this whole flat earth thing was until I spent some time with my crazy flat earther uncle uh, and, and uh, watched these videos on his, his big screen TV. I couldn't believe the production values. Oh yeah, you know, they must have spent more money in in you know ten minutes of this flat Earth video than the nine eleven truth movement has spent on every video it's ever made. So where did all that money come from to make flat Earth videos? Uh, probably Cass Sunstein. I think I think Rogan brought that up. He was like, "Doesn't this seem like someone seeding something?" So that was maybe a bad a bad example. But regardless, that is an example. Like, yeah, if it's not, it, it won't it won't survive criticism criticism and examination. Um. I guess kind of lastly, your thoughts on uh, the, the the ongoing U.S. involvement in Ukraine versus Russia. I think I think we're doing it to force Russia into the hands of China so we can, you know, right after COVID, it's one-two punch. We have a weakened China, and now we're taking a weakened Russia, and now we want to lump them together. And we, we're kind of achieving what Trump wanted to achieve, and it's a a more involved Europe in NATO, both funding and hardware, except it didn't have to be orange, man. It was allowed to be Biden. It's the same end goal and a decoupling from China and ultimately a new Cold War, which, you know, has been bad for business that it that it ended 32 years ago. It seems like we're hurtling right. To, is that is that too wild of a conspiracy to think? The one well, two no, that's in some ways it's not even quite wild enough <laughs> i mean i think you're barking up the right tree though for sure but but i think it, the i think pepe escobar is probably right and there are a lot of people who agree with him uh but he's just one name to cite who argues that this is as much a u.s war on germany as on russia and that to understand this you have to go back and you know read your geopolitics okay. of you know mackinder and so on uh the uh, trying, if you're trying to rule the world from an island off in the Atlantic, the British did that from a small island. The Americans are now doing that from a bigger island. You have a problem. And Brzezinski, of course, wrote about this in the Grand Chessboard, which is that Eurasia, which even to some extent includes parts of Africa, is the the world island. It's it's where the vast majority of resources and uh, productive people happen to be. And so trying to rule that mass, that big productive mass from an island offshore is, is really hard. How do you do it? Divide and conquer. You know, that's how the British were able to keep the British empire going and, and rule the world from their little island. And of course, the U.S. is doing the same thing and has been ever since. And the big threat is that Eurasia will become peaceful, prosperous, and relatively united. If that ever happens, those of us living on these little islands off the Atlantic are toast. At least we're not ruling the world anymore. So, what they're trying to make sure doesn't happen is that, you know, Germany would be trading with Russia and especially getting all that cheap energy from Russia and getting rich and Europe getting rich off trading with Russia and China and getting integrated throughout Eurasia on the Belt and Road Initiative. Mm -hmm. And this world island consists consisting of Europe, Europe, Asia and uh, North Africa all becoming linked together and peaceful and prosperous. That's the world that doesn't allow for one hegemon to rule it from a little island off in the Atlantic. So uh, this war is designed 
to you know destroy Germany or keep Germany weak. And Germany is the industrial heart of Europe. So basically, we're wiping out the EU. And we've already seen the euro crash, of course, and you know, half its industrial capacity. A lot of it is racing to America. The finance is racing to the U.S., propping up the dollar. Good for the U.S., uh, terrible for the Europeans. So we're we're just destroying Europe, and then we're also trying to they're trying to bleed Russia. Uh, to weaken Russia, and then they're going to go after China. However, I don't think this is that such a great strategy. It's not only morally atrocious, but it's strategically, it's not necessarily all that bright either. Normally, if you're the number one power, you want number two and number three to fight. You don't want them, you want to drive mm -hmm. them together. But through American uh, bellicose intransigence and just obnoxiousness, <laughs> uh, really bad behavior all around, we've managed to alienate a lot of people, starting with the Russians and the Chinese, and of course the Iranians, and so we're driving all of them together into a block that is dedicated to ending this reign of the U.S. unipolar hegemon. I don't think that's good strategy, and I don't think it's going to work. But th that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to cripple Europe, uh, bleed Russia, and once that's happened enough, then we can go and finish off China. That's their plan. But good luck with that. I'm pretty sure that that's going to collapse. Our empire is going to collapse. And then things might get really interesting. If we're lucky, it won't be like Russia after their collapse, where they lost 10 years of male life expectancy overnight, and uh, there was chaos in the streets. If we're lucky, there'll be just the right amount of chaos and uh, and, and hunger and, and difficulty that will stimulate the American people to rise up and overthrow this psychopathic elite and end the empire ourselves and restore the American Republic. Uh, and the slight hope that that might happen is really the main reason that I'm still here in, in the United States. Fair enough. Um, what do you think is like the big, big picture? Is it just empire v empire? Is, is there truly an elite orchestrating everything? Is there really a world economic? Are we hurtling towards... You know, are we hurtling towards transhumanism where a handful of uh, hyper elite will truly break free of biological limitations and not even have to merge with machine, but just become upgraded and updated through genetic and then biotech and then nano. And eventually I would imagine merging with silicon to become almost a new species that could be spacefaring and will be as unrecognizable to us as we are to tapeworms. Or is it oh. <laughs> is it not that I know that was a bit of a uh, an acid hit sentence, but oh, it's a pretty good one. Is it is is it or is it um is there an Occam's razor at that level too? Is it not that orchestrated? It's more so you know you probably have the the U.S. Anglo-Saxon national security military industrial complex Wall Street faction probably have a far east and perhaps now more like merging with a middle east you know an iranian saudi arabian now russia contingent seems like india is still kind of undecided is it more so that there's a handful of of we are the we are the, the the hegemon right now and it seems like there's a an emerging bipolar perhaps multipolar world or is it just is it is it is it 12 bong rips at two in the morning? Is it really just a bunch of, you know, demons in the back room with cigars pulling the puppet strings, you know, a la Bill Hicks? Not that you have the answer, not to burden you with that, but 
because I'm now relying, I'm, I'm, I'm laundering all of my responsibility through you to tell me the truth, <laughs> completely well, shirking my own, my own responsibility in this question. Oh man. Well, if it, that's a, a very big question. It's the biggest. Know. Yeah. You're talking about the whole, whole the bunch big of big enchilada, of the big one, the Indeed. big kahuna. Yeah. Yeah. This enchilada has all these different layers, right? There's the, yeah. the geopolitical layer and so on. And, you know, zooming back to what I think is the most meaningful way of thinking about all of this is I think that what you described as this effort, uh, this transhumanist effort to have absolute control through all of these you know, cybernetic systems and so on, and ultimately merge mind with machine and, and get transcendence that way. And, you know, to me, that is sort of the uh, utopian dream, this millennial kind of dream of the materialist world. Mm. And I think that the whole philosophy of materialism is wrong. So I would recommend reading Bernardo Castrop's book, and maybe you'll have better luck than I have in getting him to come on your show, uh, Why Materialism is Baloney. So as I see it, we are spiritual entities having a material experience. Mm -hmm. um, when we our bodies die, our consciousness goes off to eternity, one way or another. Traditional religions give a picture of that and tell us that depending on how we've lived and how we die, we have very different experiences of eternity, whether, a, a, you know, an eternal bad acid trip, if you've been bad, uh, or you die badly and have had a bad life, or uh, kind of paradise, if not, on the other extreme. Uh, so uh, it seems to me that the real struggle here is between the people of truth and justice, who, uh, to the extent that they have the truth, which is, is that truth that uh, consciousness, not matter, is the basis of reality. Sure. Uh, and that the proper human uh, orientation towards reality is a kind of joyful surrender, submission to the creator of this reality. So those who have that particular truth find themselves at a kind of war, spiritual war, with the <laughs> demons of disinformation, that is, the people of the lie. And the shaitan, the Satan, is you know, sort of our emblematic leader of the forces whose purpose in existence is to test us by coming at us with, with the negativity. And on that side are the materialists. The materialists are both the brainwashed uh, people who are too obtuse to see the reality. They believe that they're just matter. They don't understand that there's the spiritual dimension, that consciousness is the base of reality. And then you also have these black magician types who are conscious of the reality and they're using magic, that is direct psychic power over the way things happen, uh, to try to make sure that people don't awaken to the yeah. spiritual nature of reality. So that's the real struggle that's going on. And I think that most of the sort of the post-Christian West has gone down the wrong track with its atheism and materialism and has gotten de facto onto the side of Satan in this spiritual war. And where things go in the future, whether we create a hell on earth by going along with these satanic forces, or whether somehow we're able to spark a spiritual awakening to the truth, uh, which includes the truth of God's justice and the truth that the best way we can go is to be people of truth and justice, the extent that we can get that spark of awakening going 
and it could be contagious, you know, when, when yeah. one person is a little bit psychic and, and loving and so on, and has that higher consciousness vibe, it starts to you know go around. We can get that going, then, you know, maybe we can win that spiritual battle. So that's the way I, as that I think is really the, the bottom line of it. And then all this geopolitical stuff and all of these little power games that people play are really sort of just the epiphenomena of this yeah. deeper spiritual battle. Beautifully said. Yeah. It's yeah. The spiritual battle is these, is the snowplow going down the road. The stuff being thrown off on the sides are all the little, just the backstory. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a, yeah. the King of England. Ah, uh, there's Napoleon. Ah, uh, there's a, you know, the, the federal reserve. It's, it's just the, yeah, it's the, it's, it's the effect. It's not the main story. And I tend to agree with everything you just said. And um, the one thing I've kind of started to make, conclude a little more conclude in my own mind of course i'm 32 years old and i have limited experiences who knows what i'll believe next year but right now i'm looking at more and more of um it is a it is a physical world where these where these battles are being played out right it's all consciousness the physical manifestations of wealth and empire and false flags and covid and ftx crypto it, it's all all the the ripples from it and that the the love and the light is it does seem to be more powerful it it seems to be uh harder to ignite it doesn't burn as easily as the evil does if it bleeds mm -hmm. it leads much like uh the jet fuel used for the sr-71 blackbird uh you could actually drop a match into it and it wouldn't light that they, they used to scare technicians that's how they'd haze them they'd throw a cigarette into a barrel of it and it took like a like a like a trimethyl boring flame or something that burned at ten thousand degrees to light it. And then once it lit, it could power the SR seventy one to go Mach three. The light is the truth, the light, the love, the positivity, the optimism, the fulfillment, the that ground love for the divine being. I think it is more contagious. I think it has a higher ignition point, and it's and I don't think that's an accident. I haven't figured that out, but I don't think that's an accident. I think you got to truly want it. You got to truly give it your all. Anyone right now, I could just easily start just, I could just, I could probably make this my most viewed episode by if I stood up right now, took my pants off, said the N word, and then like shit on this chair. People will be like, Tommy finally lost it. He did a thousand episodes. And this poor man, Mr. Barrett, saw him just lose his mind. Oh, the ADL would find a way to blame me for that. They would, and I and I would, I would, I would say no. Give this to me, right? <laughs> That's the easiest way to get it going. It's much more difficult to have conversations, have open-minded conversations, remain cordial, try to cover as many different topics as I can, be consistent, show respect to guests, you know, blah blah blah. But that's a much more renewable firm it's not the leaves it's actual logs burning it can burn for a long time and it's you know it's comforting it has the bed of coals it's not a quick flash in the pan i think that's what it is is enough people and i know that's kind of like a it's echoed in more new age you kind of thought you, know, you do see it in a lot of cults and a lot of charlatans you know you got to reach 10 percent of the population i don't know that and i'm not going to claim to know it but it does seem that there is like a critical mass that needs to be hit uh, I don't know what it is. I don't I'm not sure if it's been done on this planet before. It certainly doesn't seem like it's been done in recorded history. It, it seems like if we ever did reach that critical mass, it would almost be irreversible. So by virtue of the fact it doesn't exist, seems like it probably hasn't existed unless it was wiped out or 
who knows, maybe we've been here multiple iterations of times, whatever. But then lastly, it seems like this is a big game, but it's not even the biggest game. The biggest game is for you personally. How did you play the game? And maybe the forces are so dark that you really can't beat them all out. But so long as you give it your all and you did everything in your power, that that directly affects your eternity. So although this chessboard, which lasts, you know, on average eight decades for us, is important and it's the light versus the dark, more important than that is the role you played. So maybe your team doesn't win the championship, but if you scored 50 points, had a bunch of rebounds and some assists, you know, the recruiters are paying attention to that. Maybe your team lost, but you are you're still a prospect. I think that is probably what determines uh, eternity or the the next level of whatever this conscious subjective experience that I am having is. is so maybe it does all go to hell and it's a bunch of transhumanist satanic pedophiles rule the world. But if I put my best foot forward and truly try my hardest, I think I'll be okay. And maybe that's a protective mechanism. Maybe that's my brain trying to protect myself because it can't fathom a world where evil wins. That might be true too. You know, when a shark bites your leg off, apparently you go in a shock and you don't feel it. It might be that. I'm not I'm not ignorant of that. But I I in my bones really don't believe that. I I, I do think that's that's the truth. Where there's a big game, but more importantly is how you played it. All your classmates might have failed on the group project but the teacher will notice if if you did your part well i don't know not again not that you have the answer or i have the answer but uh you had a brilliant answer that sounds about yeah i I like yours too thank you you're you're really good at coming up with metaphors on the wing i've I've Uh, noticed that that that's i think the one and only consistent compliment i get about this podcast is metaphors (laughs) and analogies nothing else they're like huh. you're kind of insane, and I'm like, yeah, all right, but I'll take it. I'll take it. Yeah, yeah. So, well, you know, maybe you should try your hand at poetry. You know, that's uh, yeah, that's if this, yeah. if this doesn't work out. It might be poetry. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe kind of merge the two. Like, do a try a couple of poetry casts. Like, you know. just it's speaking in and yeah, and what <laughs> iambic iambic pentameter, whatever the hell it was. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe that's where I'll start. I'll be the QAnon of podcasts. I'll have meanings upon meanings and it'll be shakespearean people will be like he wasn't just screaming about the american empire it was actually an allegory about a coming of age like i'll <laughs> be like what? <laughs> all right whatever man um yeah it'll be like the, the people trying to figure out what finnegan's wake meant or, or yeah. what QAnon meant or yeah it's, it's, i think it's the same people that you know yeah. like, <laughs> read what finnegan's did, wake that read QAnon. what did he mean by it dude i think he was just i think he just drank a red bull and started screaming about operation northwoods i don't think it went any deeper than that no there's more meaning to it all right i'll take it i'll, t- I'll you know my ego will use the stroking i don't care but um dude that was a fun episode i'd love to have you on again that i yeah I, likewise I, yeah it was it was fun as you can tell there's no uh there's really no direction to it it's just uh yeah. i don't know bring your a game have a good I, attitude and whatever yeah, yeah, I, I like the no limits aspect of it too. I know so you don't start getting uncomfortable if I mention this or that. It's all, no, I don't, it's all, I don't. everything's on the table. So that's that's yeah. cool. Yeah, I, I, I don't, you know, my rules are are, my rules are like the legal laws of the United States. Like, yeah. don't don't call for violence. Uh, I prefer for people not to use like racial slurs. Mm. 
it's about it. It's about it. You know, it's really whatever the, the, the legal laws of speech are. I don't, other than that, I don't, I don't care. Why, why would I? Well, that's what Elon Musk said about Twitter, but yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah, well now he, and yeah, he's banning people happened. that insult yeah. him, but I don't know. That's, that'll be an interesting development to watch is uh yeah. how, how he takes that. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. It doesn't look too good so far. We'll, we'll see. It's entertaining. The pop, yeah, that's right. The, the pop. You never know what's next. Yeah, maybe that's the, that's his his plan. Actually, is to keep us uh, guessing. He might be taking my podcast approach, mm-hmm. in that he doesn't know what the next minute holds, mm-hmm. and we're trying to break it down. Like, what did he mean by that? And he's just riding by the seat of his. Who knows? I don't know. Um, but if you could, man, uh, in in our email thread, um, send me your, your website or links, and I'll put it in the description, and um, I'll send you this when it's up. It'll be up later tonight. And uh, I'd love to have you on again. That was very fun. I appreciate it. Okay. Sounds good, Tommy. Yeah, appreciate it too. It's a very good conversation. Thank you. Happy Thanksgiving. God bless everybody.